Mark, let's start with the history of AdSec evolution. You break it down into three stages. So why these stages and why do you find it helpful to think about the evolution that way? Right. Well, generally, I think it's useful to kind of think about the advance of technology generationally, right? You go over and talk to the aerospace folks and they talk about fifth generation fighters. You talk to the telecom folks and we're on the fifth generation of uh, uh, internet and wireless connectivity. In EdTech, we're still only uh, just beginning Gen 3 and we like to Think about it from that perspective because it helps the educators to really get a handle on the evolving role of technology in their classrooms. Uh, when EdTech first started, uh, really the foundational idea was just to take content and information that the educators had always used in print form and to make it digital. And it was as simple as that. And the team at Amira actually helped to build one of the most successful of those first-gen text-to-digital uh, applications called Accelerated Reader. Uh, and those pieces of software were helpful uh, because they created all the convenience and scalability and long-term memory that's inherent in the digital process, uh, but they didn't add a ton uh, to just having pieces of paper beyond convenience. Then what we saw is that people figured out that uh, the digital uh, process enabled a new form of content where we weren't bound by the linearity of the textbook or the printed page. And so uh, the second generation of ed tech, and it's the ed tech that's in almost every classroom today, is personalized and adapted content where we can deliver what amounts to uh, a tailored bespoke book uh, to each student. And again, that's useful, uh, it's helping, uh, but it's still incredibly limited. And what we believe is that we're now ready for the third generation, which is uh, defined by the technology actually replacing, substituting, uplifting the instructional process itself and having a direct role in the dialogue of learning that to this moment technology's not had. So one, two, three, uh, those generations help the educators to really put their fingers on why technology can do more now than we've been able to do before with AI. And I imagine those generations evolved with the evolution of the technology itself. Were there any important breakthroughs in technology that kind of ushered each generation? Absolutely. Well, listen, uh, it's obvious, right? The first generation was just defined by the introduction of the internet and the ubiquity of online access. Uh, the second generation was really uh, defined by our capacity uh, to manage content in a more intelligent form and to introduce adaptive assessments that uh, let us uh, pinpoint student capabilities in an efficient way. Uh, but again, you know, what you really saw with that Gen 2 technology was a mirror of what was happening in sort of the broader web world. And for sure, 
what we're seeing with Gen 3 is that the foundational shift is uh, uh, the emergence of speech recognition, machine learning, uh, conversational AI, all the tools that are defining Web 3. And Amir is certainly a Gen 3 technology. So what does it bring to the table? Uh, and uh, what's the uh, what's the potential there? Right. Well, I think the starting point for understanding Amira is that the software did not come into the world as a set of technologies looking for a problem to solve. It evolved really from the opposite point of view. Uh, sometimes when I talk to uh, incredibly smart, incredibly sophisticated people, uh, like almost everyone listening to this podcast, uh, we forget that reading is a struggle for most students, and in fact, for a very significant number of adults. And there is a huge literacy problem uh, many of the policymakers call it a literacy crisis with very little exaggeration, where students are less and less able to read well and to translate that reading into logical, grounded comprehension. And so Amira emerged because of the test scores and the data that tells us that students are not doing well in the early stages of literacy acquisition. And what we tried to do was to imagine uh, the technology that could really make a difference in helping students learn to read. And then we worked backwards from that model, uh, that model of intelligent tutoring uh, to figure out uh, what AI components were necessary to allow us to deliver the solution that the research tells us is required to boost reading skills. Okay, and how uh, how did, did you approach this thing? Maybe there was a journey that you went through different stages, different yeah. uh, potential solutions, and what final solution you settled yeah. on? Well, let's start with the final solution. So the final solution is, is that Amira mirrors uh, the uh, tutoring process that we see in the research does the best job of helping us to scaffold reading skills. And that process, I'm guessing most people uh, learn to read precisely this way. That process is for the student, the young reader, to sit next to a good reader and to read out loud and to build their fluency through that act of oral reading. But when that young reader hits words or phrases that they don't understand or can't decode and pronounce properly, then the better reader, the tutor, gives them a hand to help them build the gap skills. And so it's a one-to-one -one tutoring model based on a Socratic dialogue that enables 
the learning reader to acquire uh, reading mastery through practice. And that is exactly what Amira does. Amira uh, basically opens up uh, a passage, a story, a book on the screen. Uh, we take away all the pictures, all the cues. We ask the student to read that uh, passage out loud to Amira. Uh, there's no teachers, there's no parents. The student reads out loud and Amira uh, uh, seizes on the moments where that student is struggling to help that reader uh, get better. And that interaction uh, between the uh, student and the software we call a micro-intervention because Amira employs all kinds of fancy techniques uh, to help the student to learn how to do things like decode words and to be more aware of phonics and to uh, uh, ask questions that lead to better comprehension. So how do we get there? Well, uh, we got there uh, pretty much uh, the way that I think most good AI technologies evolve. Uh, we got there through a very lengthy uh, journey of experimentation and A-B testing. And uh, uh, you guys can tell that uh, I've been building software for a long time, uh, but it may surprise you to know that Amira is the culmination of almost 30 years of research and development at the combination of Carnegie Mellon University and a very successful ed tech company called Renaissance. And it was the learnings from uh, both teams uh, that came together that allowed us to, uh, to create Amira. You have several papers on that. And uh, in terms of the system in action, uh, I encourage everyone to check out the videos on the Amira website. Uh, they're really impressive and they give you a very clear idea of uh, how the system help, helps kids uh, to improve their reading skills. And in terms of the uh, research that you've based uh, the system on, and can you talk more about it and also about the results of comparing Amira's uh, pro process with the traditional tutoring process? Yes. Uh, so one of the things that we're big believers in is that ed tech needs to be thought about more in the context of pharma than in the context of conventional software. I think none of us would want to go to a doctor and have the doctor prescribe a drug that hadn't been through clinical trials uh, and hadn't been uh, carefully tested in random controlled trials under very rigorous circumstances to understand both the drug's efficacy in treating the intended uh, disease and also in ascertaining side effects that may happen. Uh, when you think about it, EdTech is really drugs for students' minds. I mean, we are literally trying to rewire a student's brain to create things like early literacy fluency and early numeracy. That rewiring process is uh, profound, uh, but uh, uh, notwithstanding its vital importance in our lives, uh, we have treated EdTech very casually compared to how we treat pharma. And so uh, a big part of the Amira orientation 
is, is that we test everything we do, not just in the traditional AI way of uh, uh, comparing model outcomes against uh, uh, theoretical test sets. Uh, we tested in random control trials with carefully curated groups of students, and those tests are conducted independently by research universities like Columbia and the University of British Columbia. And so uh, the starting point is, is that our models are driven uh, not just by the conventional uh, machine learning development process, but also by these field trials that tell us whether something's working uh, with real-life students. Uh, the other thing that I would just say on this topic is, is that it's important to think of Amira as a stack of AI. So Amira starts with the capacity to understand a student's speech. Um, that's obvious. If you listen to the videos, you'll see, of course, there's speech recognition in there driven by deep learning models. But underneath that, uh, there's a set of both kind of classic ML and more advanced uh, reinforcement learning that's helping Amira to emulate the decision-making process that teachers and tutors go through. And so each of those component models has had to be developed, tested, and iterated over time uh, to see that it's doing its particular piece of the puzzle well. And to summarize the results of the research about the outcomes of Amira, we can say that the outcomes are not uh, just equal to the outcomes of a human uh, of a best uh, reading tutoring programs in roughly the same amount of time and that's per published research by proventutor.org that's what i found in your paper yeah uh, in your Document. Yes, that is absolutely right. Uh, what we've seen is, is that compared to not using Amira, students grow their reading skills about twice as fast. And compared to giving uh, a student their own really top-notch human tutor, uh, Amira is 10 to 20% better. So, yeah, it's... it's uh, it's one of the rare situations, maybe like chess, uh, where uh, where the machine is uh, able to do better than the people at this point. What do you attribute that 10 to 20 percent edge uh, to? Yeah. Well, uh, uh, you're going to laugh at this, but part of it is just Amira's infinitely patient and infinitely persistent. Uh, it takes a ton of time and effort to help a student become fluent. And the work that we need to do with each student is, frankly, uh, incredibly boring and incredibly repetitive from a human point of view. Uh, so the mere fact that the software is able to hang in there day in and day out and you know keep uh, keep working with the student, uh, it's hard for, for people to emulate that level of patience and persistence. Uh, but the other thing that we found that Amira brings to the table uh, is in a capacity to continuously adjust to the learning needs of that student right now. Um, you guys have probably seen this with your uh, children or your nieces and nephews, but when kids are five or six years old, 
they're changing unbelievably quickly. And uh, uh, we as humans often are slow to make those adjustments in terms of how we're helping that child to learn. Um, Amira, through uh, many, many years of working with more than a million students, has gotten very adept at being able to measure incremental improvement in a student's skills and to help them to learn the next thing up. So that ability to be right on point uh, is something the research tells us makes Amira super effective as a tutor. This is definitely, uh, it's interesting. It's really interesting that one of the most important things is the one thing that we, we humans definitely uh, could have more of and it is patience uh yeah yes <laughs> yes uh, uh i can say that uh, i'm not a very patient person so i empathize with all of the parents and teachers who you know struggle to uh to put in the 15 20 30 minutes a day that it takes to really uh, work with the student individually but but you're right uh one of the things that uh, the research tells us is, is that setting a mirror aside, if we want the kids we care about to become better readers, one of the very best things we can do is to find the time and patience to just work with them, you know, a few minutes every single day. And that, that, that does wonders. It does wonders. And you yeah. managed to bring it to a million kids, uh, which is an unprecedented scale in that sec, I think. So how did you achieve it? And what is overall your uh, adoption yeah. strategy? Yes, well, it is unprecedented scale for uh, ed tech driven by AI. There's some ed tech that's been uh, widely adopted and has done really well in terms of getting into classrooms. But as mentioned, that ed tech is older stuff that has uh, far less ambition to, 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 to really move the needle on uh, student uh, uh, learning acceleration. So uh, I will tell you that uh, uh, we kind of learned three lessons about how to get AI into classrooms. One is to minimize AI, frankly. Uh, the educators don't want to hear about cool technology. They want to hear about outcomes and results. They want to uh, actually believe that anything that they're going to spend money and time and energy on actually works. So uh, one of our learnings is to uh, talk about Amir is intelligent, Amir is smart, uh, but we, we, we don't make a huge deal about the AI because we often find that, that obscures the important message, which is that Amira works. Second thing that we've learned is, is that uh, AI is fantastic. It's why Amira can help kids. Uh, but we had to learn that the AI has to be surrounded by a lot of sophistication in just making the technology live in real world classrooms. So one of my mentors uses the, the phrase enterprise readiness, right? Uh, it's not just can the software do its job, but can it do its job in the real world of the enterprise it's working in? In our case, as you might imagine, Amira works 
in classrooms with a couple of dozen screaming six-year-olds with uh, alarm bells re ringing in the background with uh, loudspeakers blaring that it's time for lunch. And so just being able to uh, uh, get to the place where we had uh, AI, not just for the big main things that Amir is about, but AI that protects the software from all the real world problems and issues turned out to be a, a huge driver of success. And then the last thing that, that we learned uh, was uh, uh, to just constantly, constantly, constantly be iterating in the face of student feedback. The hardest thing for us is engagement. And so uh, we had to really, really create tight feedback loops where uh, we uh, listened to the six-year-olds when they told us uh, what wasn't working for them. Um, and may or may not be a surprise to folks that uh, it turned out that everything from Amira's voice to Amira's clothes uh, to Amira's uh, uh, way of praising them all came in for a lot of harsh criticism from, from the kids. And we had to do a lot of iteration before uh, that, uh, that stuff really worked. How do you work with schools at this stage? Uh, yeah. And in general, there are a few things that kind of hinder adoption of AI technologies and educations like COPPA, uh, like uh, access to training data. But even starting with the more simple thing uh, of getting in front of the right people at schools and getting them to commit to give it a try. Yeah, listen, uh, often say this, uh, uh, I've worked in other spaces where I had to uh, to work with very senior people, CEOs and senators. Uh, it is easier to get into a Fortune 500 CEO's office than it is to get into the office of most principals. They are drowning in crisis and things to do, especially the last couple of years with COVID. So. Number one, uh, uh, you have to really respect the fact that the educators are under a lot of pressure. And when you're dealing with them, you know, you have to be super sensitive to being both time efficient and to giving back to them more than you're asking from them. So just really having empathy for the incredibly tough job that they do um, and the uh, continual set of uh, crises that they live with. Uh, second thing, um, and, and this comes with things like COPA, is to really understand the vertical. Um, I think the thing that makes the Amira team special, we've got a lot of great folks. I know everybody out there works on great teams, uh, but our folks aren't just data scientists and engineers. They're data scientists and engineers who really understand education and early literacy in particular. So making yourself a domain expert and being able to speak not the, just the language, not just emulate the vocabulary, but really understand uh, the world that we live in, which is a reading science world. Uh, I think this uh, makes all the difference. People uh, who are domain experts can tell very quickly if they're talking to a domain expert or a faker. And so getting to the place where you're real and authentic around that domain expertise uh, has turned out to be crucial. And then the third thing I would say is 
find easy on-ramps. Uh, we do a lot of piloting with Miro where we just say, look, try it out. We know you won't believe it until you see it working with your kids uh, and making it easy for them to put all their risks and fears aside uh, and just give it a try. Uh, this turns out to be uh, uh, a big relief for, for folks who are not uh, technophiles and who have a lot of fears based on their past history, the technology is going to let them down. How important was that research on the impact of Amira uh, in getting the schools on board? It, it's so critical. I can't even... I can't even describe how foundational it is. Look, the, the educators, as you would hope, they're tired of doing things and buying things that don't make a difference. And so one of the big mantras just generally, not just about technology, but generally with the educators is they want to start to do things from an evidence point of view. And it's not just, you know... AI tech, it's like the textbooks they're using, you know, how many minutes they're uh, devoting to different topics, the training they're giving to teachers. They want all of their decisions to be driven by evidence and research. Um, the federal government actually passed rules uh, about saying that uh, the schools need to be more evidence focused. So uh, it, it's made an enormous difference. Uh, it uh, is the critical factor in our success. And we hope that uh, uh, Amira is helping to usher in a new generation of tech and tools that are grounded in hardcore research. It's clear why they have this desire to be much more evidence-based uh, based on those results that you published where uh, it's it looks like beyond besides having so many uh, things ad tech uh, introduced into education over time uh, the the impact is not shown that prominently in the results so that's that's one of the reasons, I guess. Yes. Listen, uh, maybe you have seen and uh, heard about the most recent testing results in the aftermath of COVID. And what they are showing is that the students are performing worse today than they did 20 years ago. And when you think about that, right, what other part of our life or our society is worse than it was 20 years ago, right? Our computers are, you know, incredibly better. Our cars are better. If we go to the hospital, uh, the healthcare we receive is better. Uh, so it says a lot that in 20 years, and that's the time frame in which ed tech has come into classrooms, we've actually gone backwards on the test scores. And it's easy to blame it all on COVID, and for sure COVID's had an impact. But if you look even before COVID, the trend line was flat. It wasn't going up. And so, uh, yes, the educators are super sensitive to the fact that uh, since EdTech has been around, uh, we can't point to a lot of gains in the uh, overall test scores or overall results that we're seeing in the classroom.
what's your take on uh, this course deterioration? Is it really just flat, so ad tech had no impact, and then COVID had a negative impact, or there is more more to that? There's more to the story. Um, I, I I sometimes have the uh, pleasure, the honor of uh, working with the gaming people because they're so sophisticated around. Uh, the things that they do in terms of creating engagement. But I often tell them that uh, Amira's uh, mission in life is to counterbalance what they've done to the kids, right? Because their stuff is so great. It's so fantastic. It's so entertaining uh, that it makes reading kind of boring by comparison. And all of the data shows that with every passing year, uh, the typical five or six-year-old is reading less. And that's not an accident. That's happening because the games are better, the movies are better, Netflix is on, right? For the five-year-old mind, uh, there are many, many things now that uh, 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 create engagement, create uh, attractions that I didn't grow up with, and probably most of you didn't grow up with to the same degree. So, no, it's absolutely the case that the the challenge for the schools today is greater than it's ever been. This is very concerning, of course. And it raises a lot of questions on different levels. Like We probably yeah. became worse at math or at multiplication, at least, uh, because of calculators. And we're getting yeah worse at reading because we can watch yeah. YouTube and get that same information with the sound. Yeah. And the, the, some of the people would ask probably whether those skills are essential to a human being or uh, they can point to some skills that existed uh, many generations ago. Like uh, Most humans were able to garden uh, several generations ago and now they can't because uh, technology kind of removed that need to do that. And is it the skill like gardening or is it the skill that is so essential that we cannot lose it? You won't be surprised by my vote. Um, uh, I believe the research, especially the neuroscience, tells us quite unequivocally that reading is a very special skill around uh humans and human interaction. Um, it is not an accident that reading began exactly when civilization began. Um, it's, you know, people have been talking for a long time. Talking kind of has evolutionary support. Uh, it's sort of uh, a defining characteristic of Homo sapiens. Uh, reading emerged about 5,000 years ago we don't have an evolutionary foundation for it in the brain, but it emerged because uh, in a complex society, we need tools for absorbing information very quickly and logically organizing it. And it turns out when the neuroscientists put us under an MRI and they look at people who are good at reading, uh, we have built up the brain structures that are just foundational uh, to being able to absorb and logically deal with 
complex information and decision making. So I do not believe this is a kind of transitory skill around the economics of uh, making a living. Um, I see it as the uh, core skill that people need to function in a complex, technologically driven society. And I think some of the best thinkers uh, see that in the coming world of AI, one of the very few things we can teach kids to do that's going to survive all the change we're about to experience is to make them into good readers. Reading is a very powerful skill, and it changes your brain uh, dramatically so people who uh, without reading we will definitely not have the same brains that we have today this is a and the mris tell us that yes if if you're interested you can go out and uh, just uh, go onto youtube and look at some of the mri images that show uh, kids who are highly fluent readers and the wiring inside their brain compared to dyslexic kids or kids who are not fluent. And what, what you see is, is just a profound difference in terms of the capacity to absorb information in, in efficient ways. Right. And regardless of the future, we need our kids to be able to read today. And we need, to, we need them to be able to read well to succeed in this world. Let's talk about the AI systems powering AMIRA capabilities. You mentioned a few of them. I wonder what were the most significant challenges that you faced, your team faced, uh, building the AI systems powering AMIRA? Yeah. So the number one challenge we had to face is, is that we needed to do something that... Uh, is pretty commonplace in the deep learning world around speech recognition, but we needed to do it from, from a class of readers, a class of users, sorry, that are completely different than where the uh, traditional deep learning models have lived, right? So I worked for a long time in the adult speech space at a company called Nuance, and we pioneered uh, machine learning models around uh, automatic speech recognition. Uh, uh, but today, of course, we all live with uh, Alexa and Siri and the Google Assistant and uh, those uh, uh, deep learning models have become uh, close to human-like in their capacity to understand adult speech. But it turns out that a five-year-old uh, uh, is uh, a very different kind of speaker than even a 12 or 20 year old. Uh, they're different acoustically because of the physiological development of the vocal cords, but they're also different in terms of how they access and use language. And that's especially true when they're reading. Um, reading is not natural language as mentioned. And if you've uh, listened to an early reader, you know that they're constantly doing what we call word attacks, where they're trying to sound out the words. And that uh, stream of phonemes that they utter when they're word attacks has no resemblance whatsoever to normal speech. So our 
most uh, uh, foundational initial challenge before we could do anything else with Amira was to tackle the problem of being able to understand a five or six year old when they're trying to read. And uh, uh, that created challenges around, as you would guess, the acquisition of training data. Uh, we couldn't use the uh, adult data beyond sort of the most foundational transfer learning. We did a little bit of uh, goodness there, but it was extremely uh, baseline in terms of the uplift we got. Uh, we had a lot of challenges around the variation in dialect and accent that you see with kids uh, across the country in a very diverse world that we live in. So that was number one, the biggest issue was getting Amira to the place where uh, she can just understand uh, a, a lot of different kids who uh, who don't read very well. The second challenge that uh, we confronted uh, was the challenge of having Amira make instructional decisions in a world in which there's frankly very little data about what a good instructional decision is. We all know, right, in a, if we can build a supervised learning model based on expert judgment, we've got a relatively easy path to goodness, right? If we're trying to uh, detect uh, uh, malignant tumors compared to benign tumors and we can stand up the oncologists and they can tell us with a pretty high degree of certainty that's a benign one and that's a malignant one, uh, then we can uh, do our supervised learning. We can make some progress pretty quickly. It turns out, uh, probably you'll, you'll get this right away, it turns out uh, that there is not the same degree of inter-rater reliability around the right move to make uh, when you're trying to help a five-year-old uh, read a word. And the, the, uh, there isn't a lot of research, there isn't a lot of science, there isn't a lot of deterministic kind of understanding. Um, and so uh, it's a much, much, much harder place to, uh, to use standard kind of uh, uh, ML approaches. And then the third thing we've already touched on, uh, the third challenge for us is the AL has to not only be good at producing outcomes, it has to be pretty good at not frustrating the kids. And it turns out, as you would guess, that these things are in violent tension, that what we want to do to make them better readers often frustrates the heck out of them. Right, so we have to find a balance between motivation and mastery, um, and that emotional component. Uh, and this is where we're still working today, factoring that emotional component into the models and the decisions that they make is 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 tough. How do you experiment with the types of interventions and uh, this emotional component? Do you have yeah. some sort of a lab or do you observe kids in action? We do. Um, so uh, uh, I think in this respect, hopefully uh, we are just emulating good practices around software development. Um, we believe that we get feedback in a pretty structured way. We start when we are trying to bring something new into Amira, we start by getting feedback from the experts, right? We talk to the reading scientists, we talk to the master teachers, we make sure we're absorbing their experience and their knowledge. 
Second thing we do uh, is do focus groups with the kids. Um, so we take small samples, but where we can observe them uh, working pretty deeply with the software and really uh, get a, uh, a good impression of how uh, the proposed change is going to work. Third thing that we do is to run structured A-B tests uh, where uh, we can put that software into a production-like uh, environment, production-like experience, and statistically measure uh, goodness, uh, but without uh, exposing the mass of our uh, kids to that new thing. And then the last thing we do is put it into production, uh, but kind of on probation, uh, where we put it out there and then we look at all our metrics and measure whether we've done damage or not. So uh, hopefully that four-step process is just uh, good, good uh, software development lifecycle practice, but it's obviously super important to do that because we don't want to use five-year-olds as guinea pigs, right? We want to make sure that we're minimizing any fallout from the mistakes that we make. And in terms of the... Uh, training data. Uh, I imagine there are some sensitive. There is some sensitivity around it. So how do you approach uh, working with it? Yeah, uh, EdTech is in this sense one hundred percent equivalent to healthcare and medicine. Healthcare and medicine, obviously, we operate under the HIPAA standards uh, in. Uh, education, working with the young children. Uh, we operate under, as you mentioned, COPA and other privacy and data management rules. We have to be incredibly sensitive to this. Uh, you may have just read about the uh, Los Angeles School District uh, experienced a very bad ransomware attack where the attackers stole the data uh, from EdTech software and put it out into the world. And, you know, that kind of breach, that kind of uh, uh, massive uh, interruption of our responsibility to the parents and to the kids to protect them from uh, uh, having their privacy exposed uh, is just front and center, not just for AI companies like Amira, but anybody who's collecting student information. So yeah, we, we have to be super, super careful. And a lot of our architecture is designed to create isolation and segregation so that hopefully the things that we need to do to uh, create training and test sets and to uh, improve Amira don't result in, in uh, violations of the trust of, of, of our users and of, of kids who deserve better. Let's talk about the origins of the company. Uh, I wonder how it started. Uh, what became the trigger for you to start Amira? Yeah, well, I mentioned that uh, uh, Amira was born out of the lessons that the team here learned at Renaissance. And Renaissance was a pretty conventional software company. We built software for K-12, but it wasn't AI. It was, as mentioned, pretty simple, uh, pretty straightforward stuff. But a number of us had long experiences and careers in worlds like speech and NLP and uh, machine learning. And it was obvious to us that 
we could do better uh, if we could put more advanced technologies to work. Um, but if you know EdTech, uh, you also know that it's not a place where it's been easy to finance radical innovation. Um, it's much tougher uh, to, uh, to find the capital to, uh, to do deep research and you know, deep innovation than say compared to FinTech or places where uh, A, there's a lot more money and B, the buyers are, and, and funders are much more technologically sophisticated. So when we saw that uh, uh, the technologies, especially in speech, had reached a place where there was a high likelihood of being able to leverage uh, the advances in the world we lived in, uh, we knew we needed to find some way to short-circuit the innovation cycle. And our approach to doing that was to tap into academia in a big way. And I mentioned that ultimately Amira was born from a partnership with Carnegie Mellon, but just in general, we have relied very heavily on forging deep partnerships with academic researchers in the AI world. And so uh, uh, that ability to transfer uh, years, in some cases decades, of academic research into commercial products and to work with the universities from a tech transfer perspective has proven to be critical in kind of squaring the circle of a world that badly needs AI, but has not had the mechanisms to fund AI research and AI development. And the founding team, how did you go about building it? Yeah, so uh, this is kind of the advantage. You see all the gray hair and the receding hairline. You know, one of the advantages of working in the tech space for many years is that you work with a lot of great people. And so uh, as we thought about Amira, I was able to, uh, to tap into a pretty deep Rolodex of folks that I've worked with over time. Uh, some of those folks I was literally working with at that moment in time at Renaissance, my co-founder and CTO was my VP of engineering at Renaissance, but we were also able to reach back into history into places that were more AI focused like Nuance, um, uh, like a company that uh, I worked at started called Nova uh, that worked a lot in the uh, NLP space. So we were able to, to, to find Folks who worked together, trusted one another, and kind of bring them in. Uh, but as mentioned, uh, the one thing that uh, we've really worked on in terms of team building is uh, finding folks who have a great education and uh, reading background. Um, and so that's where uh, we've used the uh, partnerships uh, through the universities to acquire talent that uh, really understood the domain. And then you mentioned that funding is sometimes challenging for a breakthrough at tech companies. And there are multiple reasons. I think the one of the most important is that it takes a lot of time to build a really impactful uh, company in education, especially if you go after a very deep tech type of company. 
uh, and uh, it's not necessarily always match the profile of venture capital investors. So what was your experience? You realized that from the beginning that you're going into that tough uh, environment. What was your experience there? How did you manage to uh, fund the company? Yes. So uh, uh, I think there are a class of venture capital folks who uh, understand deep tech, hard tech better and are more comfortable with it. Um, but what we found was that we had to get through some of the foundational risk factors before even they were willing and able uh, to, uh, to provide funding. Um, so uh, I mentioned one way that we short-circuited the funding process was to essentially go into partnership with Carnegie Mellon and the University of Texas Health System. And you can almost see those as kind of seed rounds for us because they basically funded uh, the early development of the uh, uh, core product. And the second thing that we did um, is, is that Pete and I uh, did a little bit of self-funding to get to the place where we had a working demo. Um, and so we worked for almost half a year uh, kind of uh, from a self-funded perspective to show and demonstrate the basic uh, capability uh, and uh, help people's imagination around what a mirror would look like and work like. Third thing we did um, is we tapped into uh, some VC relationships from earlier lives. So uh, this is part of the advantage of uh, being a serial entrepreneur and founding companies. Uh, I was able to uh, use some of the credibility and relationships from those days to get uh, a bit of an extension of the seed round uh, where uh, even though people knew they were taking a, a pretty big bet, they were willing to do it just based on past history. And when we finally had uh, something that worked uh, at its core, it didn't work like ready to go out there and kick ass in the classroom, but it worked enough that people could see that the really basic issues had been transcended and surmounted. Then we were able to do a Series A with some great VCs who uh, uh, have the patience and the vision to, uh, to back something that isn't going to uh, necessarily be ready for prime time in six months. What were those validation points? You mentioned that it was not ready to perform at 100%, but, but what were the essential, like, until you achieve this, it's too early, but when you have this, it's like changes thing. And why, why specifically yeah. those? Yeah, there were, there were two validation points for us. It's a great question. There were two validation points for us. Uh, one was that... Uh, without pretending to be able to support every student, we had to be able to demonstrate that a typical student could read to a mirror and that the software would understand them, that we had a, enough of a handle on that speech rec problem that I talked about that uh, the investors could see the light at the end of the tunnel. The second thing, and I think this is just a classic, uh, is, is that we found uh, about eight school districts 
that were willing to use Amira at a very early stage and to attest to its potential value. And in that testimony, in that vouching, they weren't saying, look, this thing is the greatest ever. This thing, you know, is something we're, we're ready to, uh, to bank on. But what they did say that was key to the VCs is number one, it's different than anything that we have and frankly, different than anything we kind of imagined that technology could do for us. So the, the districts were really ready to stand up and say, we see the vision and we share the vision, right? We know there's still a journey before it's uh, completely bulletproof and ready, uh, but we were able to get a, a, a set of beta customers that vouched uh, for the power and value of the idea. Um, and it was those two things that I think uh, uh, really were our core uh, ways to get past the, the natural skepticism of the, of the VCs. Natural cautiousness, I think. Yes, natural cautiousness. Nature, nature of the work requires that type of trade. And in terms of the uh, market size and uh, market opportunity there, how did you uh, talk about that? Well, that's the good news. So we've talked about some of the challenges, but listen, uh, uh, the great news about working in education is, is that the market opportunity is massive. Uh, people don't realize that education is the second largest vertical after healthcare. But there's more money spent on a global basis on education than anything uh, except healthcare. Um, and when you think about it, it's kind of natural, right? But, you know, if you talk about a Maslow hierarchy, first thing is we got to be well. Uh, but second thing is hopefully we got to be educated. We got to take care of our minds. So uh, people are rightly, governments are rightly, households are rightly spending a lot of money on education. And the best thing of all from an investor point of view is that almost all the money they spend today is on human capital. So if you look at within a vertical, what is the percentage of spend on tech? It is by far the lowest in education compared to anything else. So uh, 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 we were able to tell a very, very convincing story around a TAM for Amira that's roughly $55 billion because that is the current spend on human tutoring around the world to help kids be able to read just in English. So $55 billion in English spend, in, in, in total spend on tutoring to, to learn English. And obviously Amira's opportunity is to disrupt that spend with a, a 10x cheaper, 10x more scalable model. So we had a great story about the TAM and the, uh, the market opportunity. All we had to do is persuade people we could really actually do the job. Ed tech is a massive uh, segment of economy. And as you said, rightfully so. Uh, w one can argue that it maybe should be bigger than healthcare because advances in, advances in healthcare are driven by educated uh, people. Speaking about the current team at Amira. Yep. How do you think about building it? What kind of 
people you're looking for, what kind of culture Amira needs uh, yeah. to succeed as a company? Yeah, listen, I, I mentioned that I've been uh, starting companies and working in technology a long time. And I'll tell you, uh, I wonder sometimes if I know anything more about culture building than I did 30 years ago, right? I know I know a lot more about AI and how to create machine learning models, but culture's tough. Um, if there's one thing I, I'm pretty sure I've learned that's right, it's that you got to be hyper intentional about culture. It, uh, uh, it is not uh, going to be good if it's accidental. And so uh, we focus a lot uh, at the leadership level at Amira uh, around the culture we want and what we can intentionally do to try to create it. And that starts with a pretty clear vision of the people that we want need at the company. And uh, there's a few things that I'll say. Uh, uh, one is uh, we want people who genuinely, not lip service, genuinely believe in the mission. Um, we are truthfully a mission-driven company. Uh, we believe deep in our bones that if we help kids to become better readers, positive financial outcomes will happen. And what that means to us is that we don't have to put financial metrics first. We can put educational outcomes first and let the financial metrics follow. But it's sometimes hard, especially in certain parts of the company, sales, marketing, uh, to find people who actually will orient themselves around that way of seeing the business finance, right? So uh, we look for people who really, really, really want to live the mission and care uh, first and foremost, about whether the software is actually going to do our users good. Um, second thing that characterizes our culture is, is that, yes, we're an AI company, but mostly we're a data company, right? We're a science company. We believe in experiments. And so we need and want people who are prepared to live their life uh, in experimental fashion, right? Who take this mantra of being able and willing to fail seriously and who are also willing to adjust their opinions and beliefs based on the data as it comes to us. We know that we don't know how to solve the problems we have. And so uh, we know the only way we're ever going to solve those problems is to follow where the data and the evidence leads us. So we need people who are legitimately open-minded, flexible, uh, oriented to evidence and willing to live in that horrible experimental world where most of what we do on the short-term basis is a flop, right? And it's tough. Um, and then the last thing I'll just say about culture, uh, and I, I, somebody said this really well to me, you know, a lot of folks talk about a culture where they don't want the a-holes. And that's, from our perspective, way too low a bar. We actually really want nice people at Amira, right? People that like to talk to other people, people who uh, relish collaboration, people who get a charge out of uh, positive interactions. So uh, a big part of the culture for us is fight. we're a remote team and we have to fight all the 
problems that come when people aren't face-to-face -face by having a culture where people really, really, really do like to collaborate and talk and work together. So those are the, the three things we, we put the most emphasis on. Which of three do you find the least abundant in candidates? Which is the biggest bottleneck? Yeah, yeah to, 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 to be, to be uh, uh, kind of transparent about a, a big surprise from my perspective, the thing that uh, really comes hardest is finding people who are uh, 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 in that data-oriented, flexible mode. Um, you know, uh, I mentioned sometimes it is a struggle in certain job categories to find people who are who are truly mission driven, but that's relatively easy to screen for. And there's a lot of mission driven people out there, um, but everybody talks about they want to be at a startup. But it's tough to find people who can actually live in the sweet spot. We see a lot of people who just don't have the resilience, right? They get worn down by the difficulty and the failure rate. It's just like the emotional resilience to, to cope with the constant setbacks and the roller coaster nature of uh, uh, the, the journey that we're on. Uh, uh, it makes a lot of people not right for the company but then on the flip side, there's a lot of people who are highly re resilient, but they are resilient precisely because they're closed-minded, right? They, they're, they're able to keep going exactly because they ignore the failures and they ignore the evidence and they just keep chugging along. And I think we all know people like that. We all see people in politics like that where, you know, no amount of data, no amount of evidence is going to change their mind. Uh, but uh, the beauty of it is they, they, they can keep going no matter what's happening around them because they're, they've immunized themselves from the, the evidence of uh, uh, the failure and the downside. So, yeah, it's tough to find people in that middle. So how to deal with that issue? You likely won't be able to change the part that is uh, already set in their ways. So your only hope is either find the middle or to coach uh, the other part and help them through the, the roller coaster. Yeah. Uh, yeah, listen, what I'll tell you, this, this is probably going to resonate, I think, with, with most of folks listening to this. It's really hard to coach closed-minded people out of uh, being closed-minded. So uh, from my point of view, that's mostly uh, being good at the hiring process. Uh, but you can help people to be more resilient. Right. Uh, and you can create a culture where people actually do come to believe that they're not going to be fired because they run a failed experiment or they're not going to, you know, uh, be criticized and uh, ostracized because uh, they do something that doesn't turn out well. So uh, uh, I think we've come to believe that, you know, you got to find people who are open-minded and evidence-driven, and that's that's a function of a good, good recruitment and uh, interviewing process, but that once you get them in the door, you, you can, uh, through uh, actively managing the culture, help people to, uh, to ride that roller coaster better. And I'll just say, I think we all know this, right? This is where you can't 
help people with words, you got to help them with actions, right? You got to show that uh, when things go wrong, that the senior leaders of the company take it with grace and take it with uh, encouragement and you know, don't respond in, in ways that punish people uh, uh, because they're super sensitive to it. Absolutely. And this is, as you said, it's not with words, it's with actions. And we're all humans and it's so hard to yeah. make sure you always behave as you as your best version of yourself would want it you to. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. Especially, I, I'm sure everyone out there who's uh, is or has been a founder knows it's tough, right? Because you're working long hours. You're you're dealing with your own set of disappointments. You're you know managing uh, many things at once, and uh, yeah, waking up and 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 not letting. Uh, those things get to you in a way that transfers to your team. It, it's it's really hard. I'm believe me. I'm still learning this every single day. Yeah. What's your approach? Uh, some some lesson uh, to the people listening. Yeah. So so uh, a couple things I've learned. Uh, uh, probably this is hopefully common sense, but I see it violated all too often. If I'm in a negative frame of mind. I definitely take more than one beat before I hit the send button on email. Um, I found that one of the things that uh, uh, causes me to work against the culture we want the most is uh, thoughtless uh, email. Uh, email is a terrible medium for communicating almost everything that isn't hyperfactual. Um, it's often misinterpreted even when uh, you're actually sending good emails. So I've learned, I, I write a lot of emails, I stick them in my draft drawer and I let them percolate and uh, fester for hours or even a day or two before I hit the send button because I've learned that uh, my best self will come around in that time frame, and if the email's ill-considered, I can uh, delete it or change it and uh, end up with a better outcome. Second thing I've learned is, is that uh, uh, there are moments for feedback and there are a lot of moments when it's not feedback time. And I try to really be intentional about that. Um, uh, if you don't find the moments for feedback, uh, then you're not doing your job as a servant leader and as a mentor. Uh, but if you uh, start to get into a mode where uh, the feedback is not structured, it's not at the right time, um, it's coming with other folks around, uh, then even if the feedback is good, uh, the surround of that feedback is going to break way too much glass. So I've, I've really tried to get better over time around dividing my interactions with folks into this is a feedback moment, this is not a feedback moment. And uh, a lot of the folks I, 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 I uh, work with know just from the title of my meeting invite whether this is going to be a feedback meeting or this is going to be an execution meeting. We're just in regular business. So. Do not assume that everyone is able to accept your good feedback at any point in time. Yeah, because we are not. Yeah. Yeah. No, listen, but, but this is also the sign. I mentioned this open-mindedness. This is a sign of uh, a, a person who ought to be at a data-driven startup. 
is, is that they are open to feedback, right? Because this is the meaning of being in an experimental world. It's not just about the structured experiments we run around the product. Uh, everything we do is an experiment, and we ought to be able to accept the fact that uh, what we do sometimes works and sometimes doesn't, and uh, we need to learn from uh, not just the success but the failure. Uh, we have a model here. I don't know how many folks have seen it, but I'm a big believer in it. Uh, we talk about you know almost everything we do through the lens of the uh, uh, the PDCA loop: plan, check, plan, do, check, adjust. Right, and uh, uh, the PC the PDCA loop uh, is not just about like software and the product dev cycle, it should be about everything. Um, you know, how we market, how we do feedback. Um, and so uh, I think if you can get people in a frame of mind uh, where they think about things that way, then the check and adjust process, which is really the feedback process, uh, it becomes a lot easier to take, right? Because then it doesn't feel so personal. It feels a lot more institutional. So. Yeah, it feels more of a part of a standard process that you just go through. No, I, one of the things I've learned is that sometimes if you can put an academic veneer around these things, that it helps people to, to, to cope emotionally with things that, to your point, are incredibly hard for them, right? And uh, I've learned that these sort of jargon frameworks, these academic models really can lower the temperature uh, on on things that that otherwise are, are are really really super tough for folks i see this is a great technique yeah for sure yep. let's turn to the future now uh what do you see or what are your goals for amira long term what do you want uh, yeah. to see it growing and what kind of change what kind of changes in education you would like to see yeah, so we have a pretty simple goal for Amira. When I grew up, uh, the standard way you learned to, to read was the Dick and Jane readers. And then there was a generation where the standard way you kind of came into contact with reading was Sesame Street, right? And, and our goal for Amira is, is that for the next generation of kids, Amira is the standard way they learn to read. And when they look back, you know, as an adult and they say, you know, what was the foundational tool that made me love to read? It was my time with Amira. So that's our goal. Uh, we want to create a, a cadre of kids around the world uh, that think of us as their Dr. Seuss, their Sesame Street, their Dick and Jane reader, right? And when we've accomplished that, uh, then then we'll know that uh, uh, this company existed for a reason, and that uh, you know the time and energy we're putting to it was was uh, well spent. And in terms of the uh, future, how do we change the that flat line to declining line uh, that we talked about before yeah. in education? Yeah. Yeah, well, listen, I, I, I want to give an answer I deeply believe in, but may feel a little convenient in the context of this particular interaction. But I deeply believe that we can change the flat line 
if we evolve to a hybrid model of helping students that couples the best of people with the best of technology. And, you know, one of the most frustrating things is, is that often the dynamic in our world, and I think sometimes generally in AI, is to think about, you know, people versus AI. It's like, who's better and when will AI be better than people? Our kind of belief, at least for education, is, is that learning is quite social. It's quite emotional. Um, it depends on uh, a human dynamic. People are essential. But we also believe that people have to be strongly supplemented and scaffolded with super smart tech. And so... Our goal is to really try to forge a partnership where the things that software does well couple with the things that people do well into a new model for that student, right? And it's a three-part harmony, a teacher, a human teacher, a student, um, and an intelligent tutor. And they're all working together to, to make the learning process happen. This is a wonderful future. We already see early beginnings of it, and uh, for sure we'll see more and more. And that's going to be very interesting to see which parts, as you said, the part of patience, for example, I now see clearly that will be uh, the part that machine will take more of a lead on and yeah. what will be the other parts where a machine will lead, where the teacher uh, will lead. Sounds good, Mark. Uh, where can listeners, listeners learn more about uh, Amira and where can they follow you online? I know you're also hiring, so talk about that too. Yeah, best place to learn about Amira is uh, amiralearning.com. Uh, we try to make our site not just about the company and about the uh, technology, but really about the mission we're on and about uh, reading science and the research around reading. So uh, take a look at amiralearning.com and follow some of the links to some of the other sites that we think are uh, uh, really important if you care about uh, uh, about how to use tech in the reading space. Um, in terms of uh, following me, LinkedIn is probably the best place. Uh, uh, we do a lot of posts and things as a company, as a team. Um, uh, and uh, in terms of hiring, yes, uh, uh, we, are, we are very, very, very aggressively trying to expand the team. Amira's uh, just exploding right now in terms of the adoption usage of the technology. So uh, we're especially looking for uh, data scientists, uh, particularly data scientists who have worked in the reinforcement learning area. Um, we're also looking, always looking for uh, great quality assurance people who uh, can help us to test this really complicated interaction that we deliver. Um, and uh, I mentioned engagement. Uh, we're looking hard for, for people uh, who are creatives around building uh, immersive experiences and uh, can help us to couple uh, Amira into the virtual reality, augmented reality that we think is going to be a big part of the learning process going forward. So if you've got uh, those kinds of skills, give us a shout. We're, we're, we'd love to have you on board. Sounds good. Uh, we'll add uh, the relevant links uh, to the show notes. Mark, 
thanks a lot for joining me today and thank you for all the work you do to make our kids better readers. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's been fun. Hope it's been of use. So see everybody soon.